Welcome to the 37th episode of Regular Tech with me, Nicholas Berlumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, last episode was about advertising, and we had a lot of really good discussions about, you know, how to think about advertising, the functions that advertising uh, can fulfill in an economy, etc. But we didn't really dig into the the sort of the greater long-term worries around targeted advertising and how advertising can really be um, uh, quite a, a um, significant infringement on privacy. So, what we what should do this time around, I think we both agreed, was to to sort of really dig into what is the nature of the challenge here, the real deep privacy challenge that advertising can sometimes bring. So, so let's start with with um, advertising in general. We talked a bit yes. about the autonomy, but let's go then from advertising in general to targeted advertising. Over to you. Yeah, yeah. so I think that's exactly right because we, we were really talking about advertising as a sort of social phenomenon. And and some of the criticism is say, look, you know, we accept advertising, but it should be this sort of display advertising, generalized advertising, that there isn't a need to do all the data collection and the concerns of the collection is excessive. So, so to sort of explore that, I think we need to dig into how this world works. And essentially, I mean, at the heart of it are these things called cookies that we all talk about. Cookies are used, they're multi-purpose, there are many flavors of cookies. But what they, what they really do at their heart is identify a particular web browser. And, and there's some differences with mobile technology, but let's, let's just focus on this, that when a web browser visits a website, you may have stored on your computer some files with some data in that are sent to the website to do all sorts of things, often do with personalizing the browser, do with secure, do all sorts of other stuff. But some of those may be unique identifiers. And that unique identifier tells the website that it's a particular browser that is now visiting it. And where that website has contracts in place with different advertising providers, that unique identifier may belong to one of the advertising providers and allows them to string together a history of the different websites you visited. And from that, they can then derive information about what you're likely to be interested in and target adverts to you based on that that profile they've built based on this unique identifier. So they essentially infer things about you from a much more complex and uh, I think in many senses consistent set of data than a single website could ever provide. So uh, you might be fine with the advertising on a single website, but you might not expect that those websites are then tied together into this um, profile or the string of inferential statements about you. Uh, so it's it's so you usually are very good to talk about when yes. we come talk about what harm. So what is, yeah. what's the harm here? Let's talk about harm. So, so in, uh, at one level, if somebody does have your entire, entire browsing history, that, that can feel harmful in the classic sense of, you know, privacy is the feeling of not being observed. So you may feel observed. And we should note that, actually, you know, the fact that these cookies are shipped backwards and forwards does not necessarily mean someone has an entire history of browsing, uh, web browsing. What they may do is make an inference and then throw the data away. And actually, that's that's more normal. And under GDPR, you know, certainly they, it's, it would be sort of improper, I think, in most cases to be storing that data where there's no, no reason to do so. But the technology, in theory, does mean that somebody could be collecting associated with a unique identifier. We can dig into what, what that means, what that means you. Is that, is that a, is a unique identifier a person or not? Is it personally identifiable or not? It's something we, we need to explore. But, but basically somewhere it exists, there's a number or code, ABC123, 
which represents my browser on my computer. And in theory, there could be a long list of all the websites I've ever visited associated with this code, ABC123. And that in itself, the existence of that database can feel very intrusive. But also you could imagine somebody with bad intent could take data from that list, that database, and do bad things to me. And and again, a lot will depend on the kind of data that's being collected. Look, if, if I'm you know, visiting lots of car websites because I want to, to buy a car. The fact that somebody's got a database with this code, ABC123, and a list of car websites, maybe kind of neither here nor there. The harm may be quite minimal to me. It's, it's not, not a much of a secret. I'm, I'm sort of looking at cars. But say I've been visiting health websites or websites associated with my sexuality or websites associated with my political views that I've not made public, then the existence of a database with a code and that list of websites potentially could be very, very harmful to me. So there are two important categories here that you've just outlined. One is that there is harm in the feeling of being observed, because when we're observed, we do things differently than when we're not observed. So that's the first general category of harm that needs to be addressed. The second category of harm that you describe is harm that comes from direct inferences from having visited subject matter websites that tell us something about you, health websites that tell us that you have a disease, or um, sites that imply that you have a certain sexual orientation, for example. Then there's a third category that I think most people uh, sort of are, are less familiar with what I know a lot of privacy advocates are worried about. And that is where you're visiting a set of websites that are innocuous in themselves, but where that pattern allows you to draw an inference about your sexuality, religion, political, or economic status in society. So, for example, if I if I know that you're just visiting um, a certain set of websites and reading a certain set of um, blogs, et cetera, et cetera, that might in itself be enough to tell me the way you vote. Uh, I might be able to infer your political views, or indeed, I might be able to infer um, that you are, uh, for certain reasons, the very way in which you, you browse might tell me that you're browsing while under the influence of drugs. So there's a whole third category here of inferences that are unexpected. Um, what do we say about those? Yeah, so, so that as, as the technology got better, and this is where the sort of artificial intelligence-powered advertising targeting sort of kicks in, that you know the, the, the incentive for somebody who's offering an advertising product is to build as rich a profile as they can about you. And they have experienced exactly as you say. I mean, something's really obvious. Look, in, in the UK... You know, if you read the Guardian newspaper, you're left wing. If you read the Daily Telegraph, you're right wing. I, I'm generalizing, but actually that generalization pretty much holds. And so someone could look at your browsing history and, and probably infer your political views quite accurately just by looking at newspaper websites, never mind all the other data points that they may collect. And so, yes, yeah, so then the database exists and says this person is... Uh, actually, sometimes the, the association not you know they're very careful because under GDPR you shouldn't you shouldn't label somebody by their politics, but they would say this person is interested in conservative politics or this person is interested in socialist politics, which to the advertiser means they're a conservative or they're a socialist, and so I can I can sort of advertise according to that. So that's at a sort of very basic level, but you're absolutely right, Nicholas, that you know now with AI type power technologies we can go several layers deeper. Uh, and, and, and actually, the machines themselves, you can train them on a data set and, look and say, look, I've got people who are like this. Uh, here's a bunch of browsing history. 
can you tell me if, or, you know, for, of these million people whose identifiers I've got, which of them are like the known group that I already have? Uh, so you get these sort of lookalike type audiences. And, and again, you may not actually understand how it found out that these other people were like the ones you've already got, but it does a pretty good job of it. So, yeah. you know, I have a database, a trained data set of people of a particular ethnic minority. And, and I say to the database, or use my AI to say, can you identify from this big, big, long list of people, people are likely to be of the same ethnic minority as my trained data set. And in many cases, it'll do that now very accurately. So you have the harm of being observed, the harm of being directly observed in doing something that allows me to draw direct inferences from your actions. You have the harm of being indirectly observed, where indirect uh, inferences can be drawn from, from you because we have been able to mine a pattern that might not be obvious, might not even be obvious to you. There's the well-known story about Target sending advertisement for for uh, kids' goods, for example, to a woman uh, because they had figured out that she was pregnant just by looking at patterns in her shopping behavior. Now, whether true or not, we will leave to, to sort of a, a longer discussion, but this is the off-cited example. Now, there's a, there's a fourth category that's also quite interesting, and that is when the targeted advertising gets it wrong. Yes. When it sort of makes these inferences, but makes them in a way that is erroneous. So it will assume that you are, for example, um, a left-wing person or a right-wing person. And then suddenly all of your advertising will start to look like that. And if somebody else looks at your advertising, they will form an opinion about you. So the fourth category is actually where targeted advertising is ineffective and it targets you erroneously. And this is also the category in which we find something that's much more nefarious, which is bias right yes so, so it's sort of bad advertising in all, all sorts of uh, uh, ways and and you hear people talk about this often actually you see them post on social media examples of the bad ads the ads that are clearly you know not relevant to them and must have been targeted at, well actually i should, should step back they may have been targeted at them because of this bad profiling then they may actually have been targeted at them because the advertiser is doing nothing more than using general demographics so the fact that they happen to be male in a particular country or female in a particular country may have been enough for them to get the ad. Um, and, and there is another sort of angle to this, I guess, which is we now assume, in a sense, that ads are targeted and therefore we take offense at when they're you know irrelevant and inappropriate for us sometimes in a way that previously we wouldn't have done because we would have understood that they were blanket ads but now it's like my god they targeted me with this therefore some person must think i have those characteristics as opposed to thinking well they're, they're just sort of spraying or, me or, or worse who am i really yes exactly right quite existential quite yeah. existential. so so there's all, all of those and I, and i think you know um for each each of those, there are different mitigation measures um, that can kind of kick in. I mean, and, that, and that's where, again, I think the regulation is focusing. So, so, so one model is to say, look, we'll ban the whole thing. You know, you just say, can't do targeted ads, and there are various ways in which you could do that. The, the other is to say, look, um, we are going to put constraints in to how you uh, handle and use that data as a form of mitigation. So, uh, I mean, the two big areas of mitigation you can do is one is you can manage whether people can collect the data. And uh, if they do collect it, how long they can store it for. So one is around the sort of existence of the data. And the other is the use of the data. So having, you know, uh, having collected it, and perhaps having a, a, a regime in place where you have to delete the raw data after a certain amount of time, you're not able to keep these browsing histories for long periods of time, or you have to handle them in particular ways. 
um, the second set of controls will say, look, okay, you've got the data, it's legitimate, you've passed all the tests for legitimate collection of the data, but we're now going to say there are certain operations you can't carry out of it. Yeah. And those may be uh, around this sort of forms of profiling. What what kind of profiling is legitimate? What's not legitimate? That It's okay to profile someone as a car buyer, but not as a socialist or right. by their sexuality. But before we get into the mitigation measures, which I do think we should get into, I think we should continue with our little catalog of harms because we said it's the harm of being observed, directly observed, indirectly observed, and erroneously observed. Now, bias is a particular subcategory of the fourth mm. one. And I think it's important to recognize that in some cases, um, the bias in targeted advertising can actually reflect bias in society in a way that's not helpful. So I'll give you an example. What if bail bond advertising is uniquely targeted to people who have African-American names in the US, for example. This is this is a known phenomenon. It's been written about something that has happened. And what happened at that point, essentially, was that the targeted advertising picked up on bias in the advertising population, the advertiser's population, and, and then uh, targeted only certain groups with deep bias and with some, some racial, uh, not even overtones, like racial implications through and through. So that category, that sort of subcategory of the fourth one, where it's where it's not er- it's not erroneous in the sense that it's uh, we're drawing the wrong inferences. It's just that we're drawing inferences that reflect deep biases and prejudice in our societies, and so you may not even get you know a you may not get a discount uh, offer because your name is wrong. Um, how do there, that seems to me to be a special category worth calling out? That's right. Yeah, and, and, and you're absolutely right. The bias can work in two ways. So one, it can be in the hands of the advertiser, i.e., they have chosen to advertise their product very deliberately to certain categories of people in a biased way. And then the other, sort of more insidious one, is that it's the algorithm, and that's particularly true for things like these lookalike audiences, where you've said to the advertising machine find me some people who are interested in my product and the advertising machine has inbuilt biases in the ai and so in that case you can legitimately argue it's the platform that is creating the biased advertising platform as opposed to a conscious choice of the advertiser now the conscious choice of the advertiser there are some of those can be quite interesting i i uh, remember a time in in uh, on facebook where um, facebook wanted to remove a category of uh, advertising which was people interested in far-right politics in Germany. And they want to remove it. You can imagine there's a lot of attention on people targeting people uh, uh, nefariously based on their political views and a concern that people would be trying to whip up extremism by targeting people on the far right. turned out that the advertisers who complained were all of the mainstream advertisers in Germany who had been using that category as an exclusionary category. In other words, they had said... I do not want you to show my ads to people of far-right persuasion. So it wasn't that people were sitting there going, find me all the far-right people. It was that you know, mainstream brands were saying, look, I really don't want my ad appearing in a news feed between five kind of you know, uh, extremist, right-wing extremist posts. So we remove the category and the outcry comes from people who are using it for exclusionary targeting. So again, the complexity around this, it, you, you may, you know, in some cases it's very overt uh, that an advertiser is targeting uh, with deliberate bias because they're trying to reach a certain category of people. In other cases, they may be just trying to protect themselves, as was the example in Germany, and seeing that their brand reputation depended on them 
exercising an exclusionary bias against people from the far right. And I don't know, you'd have a different set of ethical questions, I think, that would come out of a, a, an example like that. And it's not as easy as just to remove that category because there are proxy categories. If you, for example, yes. look at who is watching certain TV series, you know that there will be different categories, different social, different sort of ethnical categories who watch different kinds of TV series. And so if you remove the ability to target directly on ethnicity, which you don't typically have, right? That's not a category that you have. But if you remove that, then you still have all these proxy categories that can be used to make inferences about exactly who you are and what group you belong to. So, so when we talk about excluding categories, we shouldn't just say it's, it's easy. Exclude all of the overtly uh, political and overtly ethnic categories because there's so many proxy categories that cluster around them that allow advertisers to still find those groups even without explicitly specifying that they're looking for them. So, so this, is, this is sort of a, a specific category that is really interesting to think about. And there is a final category that I just wanted to get to. And that is the question of what it means to have these data data pools out there if they can be abused for other means than advertising. The fact that this data is collected, you know, someone could say, is in itself creating a vulnerability where this data can be used by some kind of agent who is much more malicious than an advertiser would be. The existence and collection of the data in itself would then be the harm. That's right. And, and, and here's where I think we need to get into the identity question a little uh, as well. So you've got platforms like Google and Facebook, where most of the people are signed up, uh, they're, they're logged in users. So they have an identity that is known to the platform. And so we know if we've got a, a data set that's, that sort of says this person is interested in particular issues, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's associated with a named person. That's clearly a huge vulnerability, but, but typically is now existing within a, a sort of single platform. So it's Facebook or Google who know these things associated with your identifier. When you move over into this other space of where it's it's these sort of ad networks, sort of cookie-based ad networks, um, they will have a data set that's associated with a cookie, not necessarily with a named individual. And so, again, there's a risk, um, but arguably it's a different level of risk where you're where you're saying, look, if if, someone, if that database was leaked from the Facebook or the Google or any other service where they've actually got logged in users with real identities, that immediately is problematic, very problematic from a privacy point of view. If there's a leak that says cookie ABC123 uh, has these characteristics, at one level it's less immediately risky, but downstream it can be much riskier because there probably are lots of places where the cookie ABC123 is associated with a named person like Richard Allen. And so, that, so a lot of the, the sort of risk assessment is based on the extent to which these data pools are linked back to named individuals versus the extent to which you can genuinely defend them as uh, not, you know, the, even if they were sort of put into the public domain or, or stolen by hackers or in falling into the hands of an abusive totalitarian regime, whether or not they could actually be traced back to named individuals. So back again. Now, looking at the harms, we said we had uh, the harm of being observed, the harm of direct inferences possible to make about you, the harm of indirect references that you might not be expecting that we can make about you, the harm of erroneous inferences where we might just get you wrong, and we have the harm of bias where you may even be excluded from advertising that you would like to have or just be targeted with advertising that you find deeply offensive. And then the very last kind of harm that we were discussing was this harm 
harm of the data pools themselves, the fact that they create a vulnerability in society because here they are and they can be abused by worst case scenario, really malicious agents who want to find out everyone who's voting for a certain party and can do so. And you, you rightly pointed out that there's a difference between logged in and cookie-based inferences, but it's a difference of degree rather than a difference of kind. So there is still a risk. Now, we have all of these harms. We have described them. I think you've described them really well. And so now we come to the pivotal question, which is, should we still allow targeted advertising, even though we know that they have all of these harms? And let's try to look at what the argument could possibly be for doing so. Yeah. So if, if we look at, let's, let's take a sort of typical transaction, which is somebody wanting to buy a car. And let's sort of imagine the world with and without. So, so the world today is like, I want to buy a car. Uh, I will go to a popular search engine. I will type in, show me the best new cars. And at that point, the search engine will have a good idea that you're looking for cars and will be able to offer to a car manufacturer the ability to advertise to you. So that's all well and good. That's great. You may then uh, uh, go into social media and join some car-related groups. They'll know that at that point, and they could offer an advertising service to you for joining car-related groups. Um, or you may go on the internet and just sort of browse car websites directly, and then the individual car websites would know when you got there uh, to show car ads because you're on a car website. So at that point, they can show you a car ad. Um, but but that leaves a whole sort of array of spaces where you're going uh, during your internet browsing where uh, the, the person who hosts that website is looking for things to show you that will earn them money, candidly, um, and that might be interesting relevant to you. And those are the spaces that then get filled by the targeted advertising related to cars. So now the car manufacturer knows they can show you ads, not just at the moment where you search on Google or you're browsing a Facebook group uh, that's related to cars or on a specific car website, they can show them to you more generally. So so that the sort of domain within which that car advertising can get you, and that's a very high value purchase, they're probably going to want to, you know, uh, they're willing to spend quite a lot of money to get advertising in front of you for that purchase. So from the advertiser's point of view, it's, you know, uh, it, it's a much richer environment that they have when they're able to have targeted advertising based on the profile of the individual, as opposed to merely being based on the context of the web activity that you're engaged in. So we can say that for, for the car advertiser, this is certainly helpful because they can directly observe that you were looking for a car. And for you as a user, it's moderately useful because you get car advertisements and you can look into them and you can see if you like the car or not. But then there's a second category of people who make an inference from you being interested in cars. So take, for example, the car insurers. They will now know that they can start targeting ads to you. What should we think about that? Yeah, so, so there, there is an ecosystem of people typically around any kind of purchase that you're making online or any expression of interest that you have in a product. Um, and actually, it's not just insurers. It, it may be there are people who want to promote car sharing clubs who are interested in the fact you're interested in a car to go, don't buy a car during our car sharing club. And they'll get their ads. And they would never you know, have seen you. They'll, they'll have had no presence you, you weren't searching for car sharing club you were searching for buy a car uh you weren't you, you, so they couldn't have done that there you're not in a car sharing group etc so there are people with competing products and it's back to this question a lot of it of, of sort of competition do, do you think it is uh helpful uh for you as an individual user of the internet 
that not only will you get ads related to the product that you're specifically looking for, the you know the context that you're you're in, um, but do you think it's helpful that others with competing or complementary or subsidiary interests, in the case of things like insurance, uh, will also come into that space? where you're placing your attention and try and get in front of you with other things that could be useful. And, um, and I say there'll be very different views from individual users. Some some people will will welcome this and others will, I mean, the, the adjective that's often used is creepy. You know, I, I went to search for a car and now I'm deluged with not only car ads, but all this other stuff to do with, you know, car insurance, car this, car that, car sharing clubs. And I find it creepy because I just went to do a search. I didn't expect this to happen. And so you you have this this sort of inference category of people who could sell car insurance otherwise if they wanted to, or the car sharing experience could be sold otherwise. But then there's a third category that I find interesting to discuss, and that is that there is a category of of uh, advertisers that couldn't advertise if it wasn't because of targeted advertising that are selling, for example, uh, different kinds of of, uh, accessories to the particular car model that you were interested in. Now they know you're interested in this car model and suddenly we've articulated a market that was not possible to advertise to before. Because if you advertise generally, your hit rate will be so incredibly low that that kind of advertising is completely useless. But now when we can articulate the market, suddenly these people can say, I have the greatest accessory to your car. You won't believe how helpful this has been to everyone else who's bought the car. And let me tell you about it. Those people would find the targeted advertising is not just uh, nice to have, but a need to have in order to have a business and to be able to advertise it as well, right? But that's right. And, and we talked a bit about this last week. I think I used the example of Victorian clothing and actually had some feedback from a listener who said, yeah, but, you know, you, you could imagine a world in which uh, the Victorian clothing shop uh, is able to advertise on all the Victorian clothing blogs and all the Victorian clothing uh, groups and Facebook and so on. So they would advertise contextually contextually it's a good word rather than necessarily you know based on individuals individual profiling and and in some cases that could work but if we take your example of the person the specific model of car it would depend on that individual joining a you know ford mondeo user group on on a social media platform or uh, expressing some interest somewhere in that particular model of car um, uh, and 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 then you as an advertiser being able to find that find that association. So I think it's possible, but it's clearly a lot more work. Uh, and again, if you're if you're looking at the trade offs here, you may say, well, privacy is worth it. It's worth making you do a lot more work that you're going to have to you know as an individual. As to take your example, the person with the specific car parts for the the scattered small community of car owners, they are just going to go and have to find all the places where those car owners are likely to go online and do a deal with those places in order to place some ads. No, but then then they're doing their own profiling. You're just shifting the site of the profiling to the individual uh, accessory provider rather than the platform. So you do eliminate the data pool problem, I suppose, but you're still creating a profile. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have the data of the individuals. What they would have instead is a list of places where people with those kind of uh, uh, interests go. I think from just a very practical point of view, though, the, the ability to do commercial deals 
between uh, a small business and lots of other micro businesses who are the ones who run all these websites and groups, the ability to do those commercial deals is actually a huge amount of friction. So how, you know, how do you work out the pricing and, and then you write a contract for you know uh, $3.23, which is all it's worth because they've only got six people who are actually going to do that. So you, you hit very quickly a lot of very practical problems, although, as I say, from a, a, a design point of view, um, at least it means that the the you know the the end user group or whatever may have personal data about those people, but the person selling the product doesn't. But and let's be clear here because I think it's important that that car accessory provider would not be buying data about you as an individual. They would be buying that generic data. People who like this car also are doing this and this and this. So there there is a difference between saying that there is a data pool of individually logged preferences and inferences and then saying that that data pool is made available in in you know in toto to advertisers because that's not happening what's happening is that you're you're being uh, offered to advertise to specific um, typical template profiles that are very broad and there's a there's a logical um, a reason for this an economic logic to this which is that it's really not that interesting for an advertisers to know who you are but it's interesting to them to know who you are like, right? Yes. Although often the the result of the advertising is for them to know who you are, because what they will do then in the ad is say, "Please come to my website and sign up, and then and allow me now to have a one to one conversation with you." So you're right; they're buying the attention to get their ad in front of you, but the the outcome of that transaction will very very often be. Uh, forming this direct relationship between you and the advertiser, where you consented, you've given well, them their data. You've chosen to do so, right? So you've that's chosen, on the yeah. individual. So that, e- back exactly. to my my hobby horse, which is agency, yeah. right? At yeah, that yeah. point, you've, the individual has chosen to do exactly this. Yeah, you've clicked the ad and you've arrived at their website and they've said, here's a special offer, you know, $5 off if you give me your email address. And you give them your email address, you get your $5 off. And and maybe a little while later, you're frustrated with them for mailing you. But in most cases, that will be a perfectly kind of normal, reasonable transaction that everyone is consenting to and is a, is a happy party to. So our first question then was, given the harms that we listed, and I won't list them again because I've listed them a couple of times now, uh, is it defensible at all to collect data that allows us to form even very coarse-grained targeted profiles. And what we've said is, well, there is some argument for that because, you know, there is a direct uh, argument for the advertiser for uh, reaching you as a consumer when you're interested in, in a good. There's an indirect reason for those who are associated in a cluster with that particular good or that, you know, in the, our, our case, the car. Uh, there's an argument that this could be useful for you and useful for them. And then there's a third argument which says that actually this articulates certain markets that wouldn't otherwise exist and where it would be super hard for individuals to develop specific products without the ability to do so. Now, that's an argument for the existence of targeted advertising, but it's not an argument for how high resolution or how fine-grained we should be able to make it. So the next question seemed to be, what, what is the optimal resolution of targeted advertising? Hmm. I think it's a great way of framing it. I mean, it reminds me of debates around uh, mapping is another and location-based services where yeah. you know it's clearly incredibly useful 
that your location is sent to a lot of providers because then they can offer you very uh, detailed local services. At the same time, we worry that they you know, can track you at a micro level. And so we often talk about resolution and crowd resolution. I think it's a great model to bring over here. Um, and I think that may be where we end up from a regulatory point of view that, that you know, I, I'm not sure there's an appetite to ban targeted advertising altogether. But there will be, and I think we've already seen it actually, sort of increasing challenges to specific aspects of it, which is really about this resolution question. Um, some of those will come from regulators, so they will they will look at certain categories of inference that you can draw, ways in which you can draw inference, the kind of processing you can do, uh, and try and limit that. Some of them actually, the the platforms try and put back in the hands of the user as a form of agency to to say you can control your own uh, category. So if we've got it wrong, we'll give you a tool to manage it. And again, it's one of those debates, like many of these, where the critics will say this is a cynical exercise on the part of the platforms to defend their outrageous models by just you know paying lip service, giving tools to the users. The platforms will say, no, it's a g- genuine tool that answers a lot of the concerns. Look, you can go and see all of the categories of interest that I've placed you in. You can remove them if you don't want them to be there. You can correct them. You can add your own in, which I think is the platform's dream that you will self-identify for the stuff you're interested in. Um, so there's, I say, a certain amount of that agency. And again, you could imagine in a regulated space that becoming more of a requirement, that there, there must be simple ways for you to be able to see who's built profiles of you for advertising purposes and, and that you, in classic data protection terms, have the ability to amend correct, delete uh, any of those entries that the advertising providers are holding. Yeah, and this is where the, uh, the, the the regulatory debate has been to some degree, I think, very simplistic because it's been a question of opt-in or opt-out. Are you opting in or are you opting out into targeted advertising? And I think it would be, and, and uh, but I do think that there's a problem with the dashboard model that you describe as well, where you sort of log into this dashboard and you see all of these interests and you can you can say, I'm not that, I'm that, and you know I'd like not to be targeted on that. It's, because resolution is already set in that model. The yes. dashboard has already decided what kind of data it collects. It would be much easier for me to imagine a world in which you actually have a slider where you say, you know, here's how high resolution I want to appear to the advertising world, where you could essentially, you could you could make yourself more and more uh, coarse-grained or more and more fine-grained with this very simple slider. And say, here's here's roughly how I want to, to be available. Because at the very lowest end, I think there's absolutely no one who would not like for the advertisers to know what country they're in or even what region of a country they're in. Because advertising, at the point where you go below that in the coarse grain slider scale, the result is absolute nonsense. You get advertising from whoever happens to pay for you. It can be, if you're in Stockholm, you can get advertising for a Thai flower shop that has a sale this weekend, and it makes no sense. So the sort of the context, when the contextual um, slider goes down all the way to zero, advertising becomes useless. So you would like to probably find a really simple solution like that that would not force you to specify at an already given resolution what components you want to have available, but rather say, here is roughly how I'd like it to appear. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's one way to get the, the other way is to, is to model out. So the, I think the, I like the slide idea, but there is, a, uh, I think, a process of modeling out what a non-personal data collecting uh, targeted model would look like. So take your example of the you know location. 
we have another proxy for location, which is your IP address. Yeah. And so again, I think people would say, look, you know, that's good enough. <laughs> Although we all know that maybe 5% of those addresses might be wrong because people are using VPNs or quirks in the network. Um, but for most people, most of the time, we can at least get country resolution. And in many countries, we can actually get down to sort of city and more local resolution. Um, and so I think we, there is, I think, a useful exercise to do to say model out how how different is it if we work in a world where we would use other mechanisms other than uh, data associated with you? But again, actually, we should remind ourselves that a lot of people feel that IPs in internet protocol addresses are also personal data and worry about the collection of yeah. that. Um, but again, it could be done in real time. In real time, when you visit the website, we will we will gate it according to uh, that address rather than a stored location that we have associated with your profile. Um, uh, there are other other sort of proxies for for what you might be interested in, as I say, that uh, that, that I think come through most strongly in some of the platforms that people most worry about. Though that's the other interesting thing that like in a, in a world where you can't target uh, based on the profile that you're holding, we're now down to sort of IP address if you're a regular website. Um, but if you're one of these first party sites, so if you're a search engine or a social media site, you've actually got a lot of profile information and a lot of very, very relevant information anyway. Uh, not because you're collecting it for the purpose of advertising, but just as because you're collecting it as part of your everyday business. Um, and so we might say even in that sort of slider model, the slider model may say, look, no third-party ads out there on the internet, no third-party data collection. But the baseline, you know, that you search for a car on Google, Google's going to be, you know, kingpin when it comes to targeting car ads even if everybody else doesn't know that you're interested in cars they would still will do uh, facebook will still know you're interested in cars if you joined a car group so so you will still have some of this but i think in a sense it would be the interest will be more concentrated in the hands of those where the expression of interest is part and parcel of the nature of the service that's a good point i think that there is a, if you were to sort of eliminate targeted advertising completely you would certainly uh, then put the power in the hands of those who according to the power law of tech markets end up in those top five percent because they would they would have if nothing else they would have the ip number and they would be able to tell for example which phone you're using and in fact you know using an iphone is a proxy for a certain social socioeconomic class it's a really simple way to identify whether, and this has been a problem because you've seen some advertisers who don't want to advertise their sales to people who are not using iPhones because they yeah. know that that they, they're sort of looking for the high-end spenders and those are the people who will afford those, I must say, I think, wonderful telephones from Cupertino. Uh, so yes. <laughs> so there's, there's something about that as well that is really uh, interesting. But I, so getting back to the point about resolution, I think resolution is one part of the solution. The other part seems to be time. Now, hmm. for how long should you be able to accrue a profile of someone? If you have a set resolution, should you be able to save it? Because the more you can accrue it over time, the more you can tell about the individual. Now, there are retention times in privacy legislation already. But what if there is a second slider that allows you to say yeah. that I just want you per session, I'm fine? Or I think it's nice if you could do it for a year. Uh, or I'm fine with you doing it forever because the increasing quality is worth it to me. Is that is that something that you think could be interesting? I, I think it could, and I think it. I mean, again, it'll vary. My understanding, certainly from uh, the people who are working on on the ad space, is the most valuable expressions of interest are recent ones. Um, certainly for a lot of the faster moving products, but again, slower moving products, car insurance. 
you actually want to know that somebody who's interested in it last year at about this time because you're going to try and sell them a policy this year uh, when they're up for renewal. So that would be longer term. Or, Car buying cycles are six, seven years yes, typically right, you know, right, in, yeah. in Western countries. So, so there's a there's a there are some products that sort of are outside of that framework. Um, you know, for a lot of other products, is very immediate. Yeah, I want to know that you're trying to buy something right now is the most important, or that you're interested in something right now is the most important uh, piece of information. Um, but again, I th- certainly think I think where um, when it comes to the holding of the granular data, so maybe your two elements that come together: the resolution and the time that you want to hold the more granular data for as little time as possible and then securely get rid of it because the more granular data about you know what you've been doing on the internet i think is the data that is most dangerous to you as an individual most potentially harmful um uh, it may be there are other categories that are less sensitive where the the, the fact that you're holding on to it for a period of time is is less material um uh, but again, this I think we're in a way we're exploring the complexity of trying to do this. So it's, we're already working two dimensions. We've got yeah. we, we've got sort of a resolution and we've got time. Uh, there's also sort of granularity. You know, am I, am I able to uh, record the fact you're interested in politics, or should I get be able to go one level lower and record the kind of politics that you're interested in? Yeah, um, that's the, and that's the, exactly right. I think that's the third criterion. The third criterion is not necessarily the resolution itself, but it's actually no. the, um, for, you know, for lack of a better Categorization. Yeah. It's a categorization. It's, it's, if you think about a, um, the way I usually think about this is like a digital image. It's about the number of colors that you'll allow in the picture, right? If resolution is the number of pixels, then and you also want to think about the number of colors, the number of nuances that you're going to allow in the picture. And that's where where you can ask questions about you know politics, religion, all of those things that have been classified as sensitive data by data protection legislation. And so, so if we we end up with with um, we end up with a really interesting catalog of harms that need to be taken into account when we're thinking about this and taken really seriously because they are real harms. And then the overall sort of the sort of gateway question: Should we still allow? targeted advertising. I think where we end up on that, you and I, is that we should. But, and this is the caveat, right? That the reality is that if we want to do that, then in order to respond to what citizens want or what users want, we need to figure out a way to take both the resolution, the time, and the categories, to your point, the categorizations, and create a space where people either themselves can define themselves as, you know, I'm comfortable with this, or where the legislator says that beyond these parameters in the model, the free dimensional model, you cannot move. And that's yeah. and that seems to be likely to be where we're heading next. What do you think? Sorry, I think so. I think some of the tools that we're talking about in the online safety space. So the debate there that we talked about is all about audit, transparency, going into the systems that the YouTube's and the Facebooks and people have, and and showing how they're doing the, the stuff that they do to try and keep it safe. I actually think some of those tools will be really relevant here. The, the first step that we need is much more exposure of what goes on in these targeted advertising systems so we all understand it. And then we can have a reasoned debate about the controls that we need and where we end up in terms of resolution, et cetera. I mean, it may be that through through that exposure of the in, inner, inner workings of this crazy online ad world, uh, society does take a view that they'd rather not have it and they'll take the economic hit. I mean, that's essentially, that's what we're talking about. It's kind of a, a hit in terms of 
the economy, competitive services, small business, all of that stuff. That may be the decision. But the moment there isn't really an informed decision or there can't be an informed decision because we don't have enough sort of knowledge and understanding of what's going on, except for a very small number of people who who do specialize in this and spend their time looking at these systems. For most people, it's it's opaque. And I think we need to get that out first. Thank you. And with that, I think we will conclude this, this session. Um, you can find it on your website, which is? www.regulate.tech. And we hope to have you with us for our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Keep your questions and comments coming. This episode was actually the result of a question that we had, and we really uh, appreciate all feedback that we can get. And we're looking forward to have you with us soon again.